The full program for Umbrella 360 is live. It's guaranteed to ruffle a few feathers and challenge industry perspectives. With five cutting-edge streams, including a masterclass stage, there is content for everyone, no matter what corner of the media and marketing industry you are from. You'll get more than enough inspo from the array of speakers on stage, including more than 40 brand or agency bosses, 10 international speakers, almost 20 interstate speakers, and even an ARIA award-winning singer. Don't delay. Grab your tickets now from umbrella360.com.au. Koshi walks away from Sunrise after 21 years as the media industry goes into rumor overdrive on who will replace him. Next Day TV ratings labeled a dinosaur by one of Australia's top marketers in the space, while the comments continue to roll in around Umbrella's media agency grad pay exclusive from last week. Later in the podcast, Lauren McNamara will be speaking with the man himself, David Kosh, about why the time is right to walk away, while Shannon Malloy chats to Cox in Ridgeway's Yatu Widders Hunt about how brands can approach The Voice, who is doing it well, and what to consider when strategizing about an approach. Welcome to the Mumbrella cast. I'm Damien Francis, and joining me today is editor of Mumbrella, Shannon Malloy. Damo, how's it going? Yay! A big round of applause for Shannon. Uh, DDC, I never get a round of applause, uh, so I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, but that's for our next intro, though. A big welcome to our CMO in residence, Diana DiCecco. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are. How are we, guys? Very well, thank you very much. And last but far from least, not least because she's got her fingers on the dial and can shut me off at any stage, producer and editorial assistant, Lauren McNamara. Yay! Again, no applause for me, DDC. Next time, next time. Just watch yourself. Just watch yourself. We've got an absolutely packed podcast episode today, so we probably should get straight into it because I think the the random banter which we probably would have had anyway is about the first topic of the day it has been a huge week in TV seven sunrise host of 21 years David Koshy Kosh is stepping down at the end of next week his replacement yet to be announced but it hasn't stopped some media outlets from quote unquote revealing who it will be in the meantime, Seven's new marketing boss, Mel Hopkins, uh, formerly of Optus, as most of us will know, has written a revealing piece for Mumbrella chastising the overnight TV ratings. So why don't we start with Koshi? Shannon, you and I both got a number of messages from people suggesting they knew who would be replacing him. Uh, One of those mentioned seems to have stolen the limelight a bit. Where are we at? Well, spoiler alert, if you're listening and waiting for next Monday's official announcement on Sunrise, they will exclusively, or so they said, uh, reveal who is replacing uh, Koshi. The mail has been for a few days that it's uh, Matt Shervington, of course, the athlete turned uh, very easy to look at TV star. Um, But we had a a story overnight from Perth now uh, over in the West uh, saying that they could confirm and reveal that Shervo is indeed the replacement. What makes this interesting is that Perth now is owned by West Australian newspapers, which is owned by Seven West Media, uh, who 
weren't thrilled that their special exclusive announcement next Monday had been spoiled. Uh, but uh, whether or not they, they got the scoop right it remains to be seen. We'll have to wait until next week, but it's just one of those interesting little tidbits about uh, about how the media works, particularly when you're all owned by the same uh, same same rich old man. Um, sorry, Shannon, just to back it up there for a second, but are you suggesting that Shervo is easier on the eye than Koshy? Uh, look, it, it, I'm always uh, I'm always all for individual taste. So <laughs> if you disagree, DDC, I, I'm not I, even going to get into it. <laughs> DDC is asking the hard questions. That was very early on in the piece for the hard questions like that. I, um, I can. Shannon, you you are formerly of uh, the TV gossip journalism mm. ilk, no less. One of the names that, that both of us got sent by by people was Shervo. And I think initially when uh, we had a chat about that, there was a little bit of a surprise of, really, Shervo? Really? Okay. But that seems to have taken or grabbed a, a, a bit of momentum. Other names in the mix, for example, Matt Doran um, have been touted. In your experience, when we've seen the, again, quote unquote, mm. revealed exclusives, uh, and like you said, we're talking about the Daily Mail and Perth Now who have come out with these headlines, how much of a pinch of salt do we need to be taking these with? Look, I think for this one, I'd be surprised if it wasn't Shervo. There are some other names in the mix like Matt Doran. I, I think it's probably still a little too soon after his Adele uh, shocker for him to to get a job like this. Um, sorry, uh, but um, Chris Brown as well. He is of course jumping from ten to seven, um, and doesn't have a huge amount on his schedule as yet. Um, but I just think uh, I think it's Shervo, and um, the, the 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 Daily Mail story saying that it was Shervo was written by um, a journalist called Amy Harris, who used to be at uh, the Daily Telegraph as their gossip columnist is very well connected uh, and uh, I think she might be on the money. We will find out. We will indeed find out uh, relatively soon as well. But that brings me to a a slight uh, connected aside, which is ratings around Breakfast TV because they've been long talked about in terms of uh, they're on the, uh, politely speaking, the lower side for shows that are so highly talked about uh, and with such big profiles. but overnight ratings were called into question in a, in a relatively big way this week by Seven's Mel Hopkins. Uh, Shannon, can you explain a bit more about her argument? Yeah. So her argument is that uh, overnight ratings that come in at sort of, you know, 9, 9.30 in the morning that show how many people tuned into a show the previous day, it's a really antiquated model. And with all of the devices that we use now to watch content, whether it be iPads or, or internet-connected televisions or smartphones uh, or catch up later on, on the various apps that the networks have, that's not being considered in uh, in the sort of the, the measure that everybody cites, which is Oztam's overnight ratings. Um, the technology to measure how many people are watching in all other forms exists. It's just not yet integrated and it comes much later in the day. And so Mel's argument is that why is the industry ignoring VOZ, as it's called, and and treating overnight ratings terrestrially as as sort of gospel? It was a really great piece, I think, because it sort of says what 
a lot of people in the TV industry feel but haven't really verbalized so far. Um, she she called uh, Overnight Ratings a dinosaur that belongs in a museum and she described uh, TV's kind of quietness about Voz as being bullshit. Um, a very strong, uh, a very strong opinion, a great piece. Go read it if you haven't. I tend to agree because, you know, if you're not familiar with how overnight ratings work, it requires that you have a box connected to your TV that then runs via a landline uh, to measure whether you're watching a show or not, and then they kind of extrapolate it out. Who has a landline anymore? But also, um, you've got to remember that's a, only a very small, uh, you know, very small percentage. Yeah, population percentage of the population. And, and probably it. not to generalise, but if you've got a landline and you're happy to have a box plugged into your TV and watch something at a broadcast hour, you might be of a particular demographic. And is that then fair to say that this show is not rating? Yeah. Shannon, I'm going to stop you right there. I've got a box that's connected to my TV show. It's called Foxtel IQ5, but still it's a box connected to my TV. And I happen to like using that TV. Anyway, let's move on relatively quickly Please before do. I dig that hole any deeper for myself. TDC, uh, you've bought TV once or twice in, in your tenure as a, a CMO. So I'm guessing you probably have an opinion on ratings and VOS and the ability for marketers to buy appropriate spots on TV. 100% I do. Um, That's all we have time for. <laughs> <laughs> We're out of here. Look, for starters, let's just call it what it is. It was a great piece, but she also works for a network and Voz is of great advantage to to all the networks, right? So I think the thing that we're, we're sort of missing is we're just at the beginning like since when has anyone in television or media for that for that matter um, adopted something with speed? Never. It's never happened. And and the overnight ratings have been, you know, have been the pillars of how we measure TV for years, for decades. So I think it's it's premature to suggest that no one's paying attention. So they just came out in it was the beginning of May, so it's 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 been literally weeks. Um, I think that I think that Voz is fantastic. You know, at the end of the day, here we finally have um, that one place that brings together, you know, broadcast viewing and connected devices. How wonderful for anyone booking television that you now have an accurate cumulative view. Um, but let's not forget that people have always been and are still obsessed with overnight rating. And that behaviour is not going to change with, you know, the, the flick of a wand. Um, I think that it's going to have, I, I think one of the complexities is having both overnight and Voz available at the same time is going to be confusing for some time. And I, I think, and if I've read correctly, I think early 2024 is when they're looking at removing the overnights. Um Personally, I think that for business, when, when, a, when a marketer is comping on a previous year, it's, it's going to be very difficult for that period of, say, um, January to May to have no, you know, nothing comparable for the 12 months um, that's, that's like for like. So my personal opinion would be I'd love to see um, I'd love to see the overnights stick through until the beginning of May so that everyone then has a full year of comparable data. I think that would be an, a, a big plus um, because yeah, at the end of the day we have we have we have a, a great mix of of 
people in from a from an agency perspective and from a brand perspective who rely on this information and, and are going to need more time. Right, coming up next, what the industry had to say about low graduate payments. Last week, Mumbrella ran a story revealing low pay rates for graduates working in media agencies, particularly at Omnicom Media Group. It came at a time where there is significant churn in the industry and while Australia goes through a cost of living crisis. It was revealed that some graduates are being paid less than $47,000 per annum, including superannuation and attracted more than 34 comments so far on the story. Shannon, uh, as one of the people who has been looking through those comments and, and moderating them, and it probably has to be said there was a number of them that we couldn't mm. uh, let through the the gate, so to speak. Uh, are there some themes popping out for for you there? What, what are sort of the most, uh, I guess, important comments coming through at the moment? One of the things that struck me is uh, were the comments, uh, again, I think from people perhaps a bit more senior in their careers or, or, or age, uh, if I'm, if I'm honest saying that, you know, oh, well, they don't really do anything and and they don't have any real values. So who cares what they're paid? The reality is that that is a very small amount of money. It's only marginally more than the minimum wage. You could earn more working as a, a waiter or in Coles, not to disparage those jobs, but these are people that have gone to university there uh, you know, devoting themselves to a craft and and they're not being compensated, not just not fairly, but in, in a sort of almost livable way. Uh, we are in the midst of a cost of living crisis. If you're living in Sydney or Melbourne as a, as a grad earning that kind of money, how are you possibly affording rent? Um, that was another theme in the comments was people saying that, you know, if these, if these figures aren't increased, you might end up with only a certain type of grad. And that is someone who has the means to afford rent or to live at home with their parents in the same city they're working. Um, there were a lot of really, really interesting comments. The ones that, that bothered me were, were those ones that I mentioned about sort of disparaging the, you know, the value of a grad, which I think is, um, is not fair. So one of the arguments within the piece uh, as well, um, and it came through in the comments also, was uh, ideas around the fact that once you've done the graduate component, you could very quickly increase your salary, um, could being the operative word there, I guess, Mm. Uh, but also that, hey, you know, it includes training on the job and the business has to be compensated for in some way, shape or form. For that, um, they have to factor that into their, you know, their, their, um, uh, you know, r- revenue and and their income. So how do they make sure that that uh, that can be paid for? Uh, essentially, mm. you know, how do you find those arguments? You know, in particular relating to that. Well, you you've got to do those those year or two years, or whatever of of dues and training mm. before you can have that opportunity is there a better way to do this oh, sure. there must be surely I, I i get the point of you know you learn a lot in that time and and then once you've kind of proven yourself or out your stripes then you can make more money but is that not kind of just a this is the way things have always been done or that's what i had to do when i was you know a young 
whippersnapper or, or whatever. Um, it's an outdated way of looking at things perhaps. And the churn rate in the industry is so big that can't be because people realise this job is not for them or they're not any good at it. I think it's just the practical reality of I can't afford to live and that's really disappointing. What talent are we losing because of that? Uh, you know, experience and mentoring and training is great, but it don't pay the bills. Yeah, and I think particularly uh, important in the current economic circumstances, which uh, we're all very well aware of. But DDC, I wanted to... I wanted to bring you in from a, a marketer's perspective on this one because I would probably make the, I, th- I think, rather fair assumption that low entry-level pay isn't something that's necessarily just a media agency issue. Uh, you know, having uh, being a journalist, I, I, I know how that first year and second and third year <laughs> felt. It was particularly uh, particularly harsh. Um, DDC, when it comes to the marketing side of things, I, I want to ask you two questions. The first of which would be having worked with a number of media agencies before, would this sort of information change how you looked at the media agency or any agency, frankly, that you were working with? Would it make any difference in terms of the choice of media agency, creative agency, PR agency, whatever? It would make me think twice. Um, And I was very much surprised to even hear this story come out, to be honest. You know, some of these businesses are making hundreds of thousands, millions in profit. Um, And if you put it into perspective, some of those graduate salaries equate to people's bonuses, you know, and, and, and that's a really hard pill to swallow. Um, there is definitely, I think, some reputational damage that can come from situations like this. Um, but more than anything, I think there is um, there is there is the view of the graduate that says, you know what, maybe I should, may, maybe this place wasn't all that it was. You know, maybe I put in some time just for my CV to make it look right, and then I'm out of here. And and that's where you find a lot of talent. You know, the ability to to retain is is becoming challenging. And, you know, the idea of people know and understand that they don't have to stick at this at this rate um, and they can job hop. And, and that idea of job hopping is something that is way more digestible now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. It's also worth pointing out that not only is this a low amount of money, but it's considerably lower than the industry average. Uh, and, and for one of the biggest uh, organisations in this industry, it's it, that's kind of just not good enough. I'd also point out that the $47,000 figure really struck me because that was my starting salary as a cadet journalist 20 years ago. Surely surely inflation exists uh, in, in the pay grade world as well as just the regular world. Uh, it's I just don't think it's good enough. Probably proves that ye, I'm older than you um, <laughs> <laughs> when I look at what my pay, pay was for the first uh, full year of being a journalist. Uh, spoiler alert, didn't have a four in front of it. <laughs> anyway, let's move on very, very quickly. Uh, DDC, let's talk about the marketing world again. Are brands, uh, and obviously this is a, a personal opinion um, rather than you've gone and canvassed every brand out there. Uh, So let's just make that uh, quite evident. But are brands guilty of a a similar situation? We've been talking very much about agency 
at the moment, but graduates within marketing teams at brands, uh, should there be a similar lens put on them as well? 100%. Um, I've never paid a salary that low. Um, I think the the absolute baseline um, should be 50. And um, I do believe, you know, back to Shannon's point, I was just thinking what my first salary was over 20 years ago was at 40. And, you know, there's there's a lot has happened in two decades. Um, so the, the fact that businesses, agency or brand side, it doesn't matter where they are, but getting graduates into our industry um, at that rate is a disgrace. Well, that's made me feel even worse about the fact that mine didn't have a four in front of it. But uh, <laughs> you didn't have the the cost of fuel, though, getting your horse and buggy to work. So, oh, shots fired! Shots fired! Everyone, shots fired! Thank you for coming on the podcast, Shannon. It's been a pleasure <laughs> having you on your last podcast. <laughs> coming up next, <laughs> Lauren is going to chat with David Kosh. <laughs> Koshi, thank you so much for joining us today on the Mumbrella cast. Now, you announced your departure from Sunrise on Monday. How has it been since then? Lauren, it has been nuts. Um, <laughs> just a, uh, a massive couple of days, something that sort of blindsided me a bit. But uh, um, it's been quite a reaction, which um, has, uh, has surprised me a bit. But, uh, yeah, no, it's been fun. Lots of people say saying very kind things. Yeah. And when you say you were blindsided, what, what do you mean by that? Oh, I, you know, I didn't think it was uh, a massive big deal. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, um, I've talked about that this isn't um, uh, Sunrise is sort of a hobby that's got a bit out of control. I've been 21 years. It's pretty normal, I thought, to uh, uh, to maybe – See this as a time to to go and do not something else, but uh, uh, to bring a bit of flex into your life, and and that's the major reason for it. But yeah. everyone's been so lovely. Good to hear. And what would you say was your proudest moment during your time at Sunrise? Oh, I'm there. Twenty one years. I think the proudest moment was is um, just what we've developed at Sunrise and. Now, when you think back, uh, when I started, we were 5% of the Today Show's audience. No one watched us. Uh, no one, I think, within the network uh, watched us. Our uh, production office was a demountable uh, in the car park at Epping. And we built a, a show that sort of become an institution. And I reckon that's what I'm proudest of at, at Sunrise, uh, what we built from basically nothing to um, uh, 20 years of, um, of winning the, the breakfast show ratings. And uh, that's why I, I leave, step down from the program with an enormous sense of pride and gratitude uh, for being part of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And is there anything that you regret or wish had gone differently? Oh, there's always things that, that you regret. That in life, you regret saying things. Uh, doing three and a half hours or three and three quarter hours of live TV every day, you're going to say some stupid things or uh, say some things that you you might want to take back. But um, I don't regret any of that because... 
Um, I'm just like anybody else, um, just like anyone talking to friends or relatives or family. Everyone has had instances of saying things like they'd want to want to take back, um, and that that's just the way it is. And I don't pretend to be somebody I'm not. Um, I've always tried to be myself, and it just comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. Fair enough, fair enough. And uh, what would you say is the biggest change in breakfast TV that you've seen during your time? Oh, I suppose, and this isn't a bad thing um, at all. It's just life. Um, I suppose the, uh, the scrutiny on it. Uh, remember, I started um, at Sunrise before Facebook, before Twitter, before Instagram, before iPhones. Uh, <laughs> how, we, used, we used to read viewer emails, good and bad, mm-hmm. um, out on the show of people's comments. Uh, we used to, if people had issues they wanted uh, solved, or discussed, we'd put it on a whiteboard uh, on set and it would stay there until we we answered that issue. Um, probably the most powerful thing we ever did because it was a message to viewers that said, your opinions count, the issues that, that you want uh, pursued or the questions you want answered are really important to us and we will put it on this whiteboard on the set and it won't come off until we answer it. Um, and that was a really powerful tool for us in the early days as we we said to people, it's not our show, it's your show. You tell us what you want to, what you want to see, um, what you want us to talk about. And um, so, but I suppose with the, with the scrutiny through social media, um, it puts a lot of pressure, I think, on any person with a profile, not just TV, puts pressure on you to change, to be, <coughs> excuse me, maybe to uh, say what you think people w- want you to say rather than say what you want to say and what, what is really you. And let me tell you, with live breakfast television, you are stripped bare. Um, uh, you cannot pretend to be someone you're not. Mm-hmm. because viewers will find you out. Uh, there's nothing surer. Um, it's unlike a, you know, um, um, a one-hour news reading show or, or pre-recorded show. Live TV, you bear your soul, and, um, and you've just got to be who you are. Other uh, Viewers hate people faking it, and they will find you out. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, who would you like to see take your place as the Sunrise co-host? Oh, look, um, I don't mind. Um, actually, one of the things I think we built at Sunrise is that it's a show way bigger than any individual person on it. And we've had changes to the team, a number of changes to the team over the years, and the show has just kept on going. Uh, from strength to strength, and that's one of the things I'm proudest of with the show. That it's a, a show that has a formula, it has values, it stands for something, and that's way bigger than any individual on the show. Uh, the only thing I can guarantee is that whoever replaces me will inevitably be younger and better looking. 
Well, Koshi, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for coming on and chatting to us and uh, all the best with everything. Good on you. Thanks for having me. Up next, Shannon discusses the voice to parliament with Cox Inall Ridgeway's Yatu Widders Hunt. Yatu Widders Hunt, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. It's great to be with you. Happy Reconciliation Week. And to you too. Now, you are a member of the Dungudi and Anawan uh, tribes, is that mm-hmm. right? Yes. And you also are at Coxinal Ridgeway. Talk to us, for those who haven't heard of uh, of your organisation, talk to us a little bit about the work that you do. Yeah, so Coxinal Ridgeway is actually a majority Aboriginal-owned social change agency. We're part of the Densu uh, family, sitting in, in Densu Creative. Um, we call ourselves a social change agency because all the things that we do, we we uh, hope to work in partnership with communities and clients to drive social change. So we work across uh, creative projects, public relations, community engagement, um, social emotional wellbeing, um, all with a view to driving meaningful social change. And uh, I imagine that it's it's a busy time for you. There's lots going on uh, and lots to talk about. Indeed, yes. It, obviously, it's Recon- National Reconciliation Week. We also um, have NAIDOC Week coming up in July, and uh, the big, <laughs> the big uh, event happening this year, obviously, is the referendum, which we're yeah. very excited about. Now, for many Australians, it, it might feel like uh, the talk about the voice and the referendum began at the last election when when Anthony Albanese kind of committed to it, but. But it's six years now since the Uluru Statement from the Heart, right? Like this isn't a new conversation for you and First Nations people. No, not at all. And I think if you, um, you know, read a lot of the the articles or the books written by people like Professor Megan Davis, you can actually see that um, these these things have been called for for a very long time. Um, there's also been a number of expert panels and reviews and processes done, um, and in particular the dialogue process, which was actually the most proportionally significant consultation of First Nations peoples in Australia. So um, it's been a long time coming. Uh, so I think it, it's particularly exciting to have the opportunity to, to to walk together and hopefully reshape Australia. Yeah, it is. It is a really exciting opportunity, but I, I can imagine that it's tough at times. How how are you going? How are, how have you been, particularly in recent weeks when you know Stan Grant's uh, explosive revelations about what he's had to put up with. Obviously, that's not a new thing for for Indigenous people, but how are you going through this process? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, it, you know, it can be it can be tough at times. Um, there is a lot of misinformation, a lot of uh, media commentary that perhaps isn't helpful and at times can be harmful um, to the conversation and to First Nations peoples. But I think overall, uh, you know, I'm really optimistic around what we can do together. Um, but certainly reflecting on on recent events and some of them have you know haven't been um, haven't been at all positive actually from from my point of view shines a light on why um, we need voice and why we need to come together on issues like this um, to yeah to to shape a more inclusive country yeah it's it's great to see as we get closer to the referendum, uh, organisations coming out uh, to say yes, whether it's sporting uh, sporting bodies uh, individually or collectively, like we've seen in recent times, but also major brands getting getting behind this. Um, what are you seeing in the space, and 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 is it encouraging uh, 
what we're seeing? Yeah, I've been really buoyed by, you know, a lot of the businesses and the brands that I know last week we had the, the sporting codes come together um, as a group to support the Yes movement. Um, there's a lot of really positive activity happening both internally and externally. So a lot of organisations investing in their internal comms, in yarning circles, in education sessions, um, in connecting people from the movement, from First Nations communities with their staff to have those conversations face-to-face. And as you mentioned, we're also seeing a lot of brands and businesses be public-facing in their support to stand up and accept the invitation, that is the Uluru Statement, um, develop creative, talk to their customer, talk to their stakeholders, um, and really think about what their sphere of influence is and how they um, can support a positive outcome. Are there some brands that, that you think might be hesitant or unsure how to approach this? Yeah, certainly, you know, we've talked to a lot of different organisations and, you know, fully appreciate there's at times some nervousness around uh, doing something that might be perceived as a political act or um, wanting to appropriately respect the diversity of views that might exist within the organisation or within that the broader community of that, that business. Um, so we absolutely have am aware that there are a number of organisations who perhaps hope to um, support YES publicly but maybe a little bit nervous about it. Um, I mean, I would absolutely encourage those organisations to consider their existing commitments, their reconciliation action plans, their partnerships with community, and it's also good to remind ourselves that the Uluru Statement was not issued to the Parliament. This is a movement of the Australian people. It was issued to us, and that includes businesses and brands and sporting codes. Um, so from my point of view, it's actually a beautiful gift that organisations can accept um, to, yeah, to drive some change. Yeah. Is there a right way to support, uh, to support the YES movement uh, and perhaps a wrong way as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it really kind of depends on the organisation and not, and I certainly know that there's different tactics and approaches that work best in different environments. I think some of the key things are ensuring that you're investing in um, that education and understanding. We have to rem- remember that anyone 40 and under pretty much has never voted in a referendum in this country. Um, so there's a lot of education to make sure people who are eligible are enrolled to vote, people know what a referendum is, they know that they have to vote. They know what the question, um, proposed question is and what the um, what the voice is. So I think that's a really critical piece to bring your community and your staff on the journey with you um, and ensure that you're talking about it, I guess, in the in, in the way that that your brand speaks to its customer and its community. Um, I don't want to say there's a there's a wrong way, but I think um, people should probably be cautious about making statements that may be perceived to be quite neutral or wishy-washy or... I want to I ask you about this because there are some organisations that are taking a pretty neutral stance. They're not saying mm. no by any means, but they're also definitely not saying yes. They're, they're saying perhaps, you know, here's information, be informed and make up your own mind. Is that, that, is that a good thing to, to not sort of say yes or no? I mean, I think like a lot of uh, issues of justice and equality, it's very hard to be take a neutral position um, on something like this and play both sides. 
Um, I think this is also unique, as I mentioned, in that it is an it, it is an invitation from First Nations peoples to the rest of the country. So it can be very difficult to not actually answer that invitation directly. Um, and it can also be quite confusing for, for people. I think this is really an opportunity, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to right a historic wrong. Um, so, yeah, I... I I think it would be, I think personally, it would be challenging to play neutral on an issue like this. And I don't think it's particularly helpful to the outcome. Absolutely. What what sort of work are you doing with brands that, that do want to, to be part of the conversation, that want to say yes and want to do it in a meaningful way? What sort of, what sort of advice are you giving? We're, yeah, we're working with a number of amazing organisations who are, you know, in various stages of um, you know, their, their journey in this, we're working with leadership groups to ensure that they're aware and across it and can feel confident to demonstrate leadership in their organisations and also publicly to fully understand what this is about and what the opportunity is for their business and brand. Um, we've also been working on content with different organisations um, that is public facing so that their customers and their stakeholders are hearing directly from First Nations peoples and allies around what this means. Um, to Australia, to communities, to people who are, you know, focused on social justice um, and also, yes, looking at different partnerships as well to bring people together because um, I think if you listen to some of the authors of the Uluru Statement, they talk about how important having those conversations in workplaces, at dinner tables, in book clubs are to actually shifting the mood of a nation and that's um you know a big part of how the 1967 referendum was achieved and it's how we believe this can be achieved as well so it's not always the big uh you know the big brand stuff it's sometimes creating space and leadership for those conversations to happen in a business and with customers and for for everyone to go on the journey together that's right yeah Yeah, this is a very uh inclusive approach i believe I think the Uluru Statement is about bringing us together um, and is about making better decisions for all Australians and is about redressing um, the omission of First Peoples in in a really uh, key document and a key process. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and, uh, and, and to share your insights. It's been lovely to chat. Lovely to chat to you. Thank you. That is all we have time for today. Remember to throw us a like and subscribe. Tell all your friends. Thank you very much to Koshi and to Yatu for joining us on the podcast and to the team here, DDC, Lauren, and to a lesser extent for the barbs that you just threw at me, Shannon Malloy. Thanks, old man. And Damo, thank you for joining us. Maybe you should have a yay. It's about time. It only took 45 minutes. Yay.